Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Our attention span grows shorter while the events creating whirlwinds around the world increase. North Korea, Iran, China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, plus domestic turmoil is everywhere. In all of this, it's easy to forget that just 18 short years ago, 9-11 happened. I often wonder how we'll see this current period that we're living through from the perspective of 50 years from now. But with respect to 9-11, the rearview mirror is starting to come into focus, even as objects are closer than they appear. How the world's and U.S. intelligence has transformed as a result of these events arguably impacts everything we do today, and they're all worth examining with this renewed hindsight. In that sense, my guest Philip Mudd was present at the creation. He was in the White House as the events unfolded on 9-11, and now he's writing about them in ways that should inform our future. Philip Mudd is the ex-deputy director of the CIA's Counterterrorism Center and the FBI's National Security Branch. His writing has appeared in numerous publications. He's the author of previous books, and it is my pleasure to welcome Philip Mudd to the program to talk about his newest work, Black Sight, the CIA in the post-9-11 world. Philip Mudd, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thanks for having me. Boy, when I was writing this book, as listening to your introduction, if you had told me that it would come in the midst of serious questions about terrorism, I would have said, well, ISIS must be back. <laughs> to be talking about Americans who are murdering people because of a, a sort of a, a, a white supremacist ideology is just, you couldn't make it up. It's unbelievable. There is this sense that if we took all the events today and imagined them 20 years ago, we would think it was some fiction somewhere or some movie somewhere. I agree with that. And I, I you know, the, the part that I still struggle with, uh, one of the many parts as a guy who did this for, for so many years is if these events, events like in El Paso, uh, had been conducted by someone from overseas, by an ISIS-inspired uh, individual, America would be contorting itself to figure out what to do immediately. And it, just the fact that it's someone who looks like us and an ideology that we're, it's very hard for us to, to accept because it's from within our own culture, that changes the way America reacts, including the direction it gives to intelligence guys. It's, it's pretty interesting to watch. Which brings us back to 9-11 and, and the events of that moment and the way in which the government reacted to them, the intelligence community reacted to them. You were there when all of this happened. You were in the White House. Talk a little bit about that from your perspective for, from the event itself. You know, that, that's, it's interesting. You would think the book is about only about black sites, the secret facilities we had, which, which it is. But the second half, which was really hard to capture, is to try to get people to remember what it was like and see it from the perspective of the CIA. There, the, the level of intensity, the anticipation that there would be what we call the second wave of 9-11-style attacks of hijackers, we thought that second wave might be uh, it might involve anthrax. The fact that for years, I would say going into 04, 05, uh, my colleagues and I thought that not only we didn't have a great understanding of Al-Qaeda, but I thought we might be losing um, the sense of responsibility. You know, 9-11 happened. If there's another one, Americans will never forgive you. And it's on you to ensure that doesn't happen again. I, I thought unless I wrote for some of my colleagues and interviewed them that that the sense of uh, frustration and concern at that time might be lost. It was just overwhelming. It's, it's hard to overstate how overwhelming it was. 
And within that context, what was the concern with respect to finding the right balance, not overreacting, not underreacting, but somehow being proportional? To what extent was that part of the conversation? Maybe not enough. Uh, the, The overall conversation was ensure this doesn't happen again. And that was a conversation, if you'll recall, people think this is a CIA conversation that America was having. Uh, I was among those who briefed the Congress. This is in the book on, um, on the techniques we were using, the interrogation techniques. The Congress at that point seemed comfortable with what we were doing. Some of them thought we should be doing more. There were a lot of conversation with, with lawyers to ensure that we, we complied, the CIA complied with U.S. federal law and how you treat prisoners. But I would, you know, people were aware, the people I worked with, that there would be judgment later on about what happened at the CIA. But I think the overwhelming sense was move fast and move hard. And the the frustrations of the past when we couldn't conduct raids against al-Qaeda, when you couldn't conduct a drone operation are, are, are gone. Make sure this never happens again. And that was pervasive for years. And where did that tone come from? Did it come from the culture of of the agency? Did it come from the president? Where did the the tone setting emerge from? I thought it was pretty universal. And and I know Americans have mixed views uh, of what the CIA did in that time. There's there's been, I think, appropriately a national conversation. So and. I asked the the people I interviewed about what they think about that conversation, which is the last chapter in the book. But I thought that the the perspective of make sure this doesn't happen again was across America. Uh, It was from the White House. It was when I did congressional briefings. It it played into the ethos of the CIA, which is a very agile organization, very willing to take risks and do things that CIA people think other agencies don't want to do holding prisoners and secret prisons overseas is a good example of that. But that didn't come in isolation. Boy, the sense I got from briefing the Senate and the Congress and just walking around Washington, reading the front pages of the Washington Post and New York Times every day, listening to the radio, was let's, this can't happen again. Uh, make sure that, that uh, people aren't jumping off buildings in New York again. It was just everybody was, was contributing to a sense that we had to move fast and hard. And when you look at it today from this perspective, from from having a little bit of distance from it, to what extent was the reaction appropriate in your view? I think a lot of it was appropriate. Uh, That is, I think there had to be an invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, In retrospect, I think that, and you know, one of the things I learned in, in as I moved higher up the system is the mistakes one makes are never little mistakes. They're not tactical. Uh, There might've been consideration about whether we could have worked more closely with the Taliban, which is what's happening now. 17, 18 years later, the people don't want to acknowledge it, but the, but what's happening in Afghanistan is we're essentially accepting that the Taliban will be part of government and realizing that the Taliban is not the same as Al Qaeda. Big decisions like that uh, were difficult then because people were just like, let's go. The decisions about interrogations, I think, were done hastily. I understand them now. I, my friends and I don't regret them, but we didn't have the luxury of time. I think people would not do that now. I would not anticipate, despite what the president has said about waterboarding, that that kind of activity will ever happen in America again. Not because the people who did it regret it, but because America has had a chance to reflect, and the people at the CIA know if they ever did that again the Congress will turn on them again. So I I think reflection is good. And I think one of the lessons learned is if anything like this happens again, make sure your political leadership reflects. Give them a couple days. 
To what extent was the immediate reaction driven by intelligence information or, in some cases, lack of intelligence information? Uh, the intelligence picture that the CIA had of al-Qaeda early on was limited. Uh, the phrase that I would use is the agency was on its back foot and al-Qaeda had the uh, momentum. For example, just specific questions like exactly what the hierarchy looked like, uh, those were the answers to those questions were limited, which is why the detainees who are featured in this book were so important to the CIA. They could offer even basic information, not necessarily about a plot, but you'd ask, who is John Doe in the organization? They'd say, well, he was a guy who ran a training camp a few years ago. That kind of information was gold. Um, that said, despite that, the, the, the pieces of the puzzle that were uh, missing, the picture clarified quickly, particularly on the CIA's capability to find members of al-Qaeda overseas and conduct raid operations against them. The, the speed with which the CIA transitioned to an organization that could find a target 10,000 miles away and fix them in an apartment so that you could ask the local security service to take them down, that, that transitioned pretty quickly. And how did that transition come about? That's a that's an interesting question. I mean, there's the broad issue of the U.S. government's pretty incredible when you when you tell it to do something. It takes a while to do it, but a catastrophic event, despite the tragedy of it, will do that for an organization. Let me get a little more tactical with you for just a second and, and uh, use a phrase on you: identity intelligence. Think about where you were in terms of a digital trail in 1990 and 1995. You probably weren't doing financial transactions online, you weren't texting, you weren't using a cell phone, you didn't have an email address, you weren't using uh, uh, chat rooms, you weren't on Facebook, you weren't buying stuff. Think of the digital trail in 2001 even and today and how much you can use patterns of activity in someone's life to understand where they are, what they're doing, what their network of contacts is. My point is the CIA developed a cadre of officers who were excellent in identity intelligence not understanding the big picture of what's going on with the Soviet missile system, but trying to find an individual terrorist overseas when you don't have much time. That was a new kind of intelligence that mushroomed after 9-11. And what were the particular challenges that came out of that? You mentioned the legal questions before, and certainly that's a larger one with respect to the black sites as well. Talk a little bit about how those legal questions played into this new world that happened and, and that began to emerge for the CIA after 9-11? Well, the legal questions for the agency were pretty straightforward um, in, a, in, a, in one sense, and that was the agency's position was if we're going to open up secret prisons and use harsh techniques, there better be paper all over this. That is, every time we make a move, there better be a Department of Justice decision that says, this is why this move complies with the Constitution and U.S. federal law. So after the first prisoner was captured, and the, and the tension of that moment is, is early on in the book, there was a lot of engagement with the Department of Justice in mid-02 about what you can do with a prisoner. Uh, and the, D the Department of Justice offered specific guidance. It's interesting because over time, into 2003, 2004, the Department of Justice got more nervous the uh, CIA asked for more guidance. It's almost like the secret conversations about what you could do in a secret prison matched the American conversations that were quickly turning to less political unity because of the Iraq war and more questions about what was happening in the war on terror. 
legal stuff was front and center because people wanted their decisions papered. They wanted to be ensured that what they were doing was legal. But those legal decisions started to get tougher and tougher as the years passed. And was there consistency between the, the legal opinions that came out of the Department of Justice versus what was coming out of the White House counsel? Uh, I don't remember. I mean, the, the key conversations would not have been with the White House counsel. The key conversations would have been with the people who decide. I mean, there's an office called the Office of Legal, Legal Counsel. It mm-hmm. sounds boring, but it's critically important within the Department of Justice. And they basically are the lawyers for the U.S. government. If you want a piece of paper to explain to you what's legal and what's not, you don't go to the White House counsel. You go to the Office of Legal Counsel under the attorney general and say, write it down, sign it. The attorney general or his deputy should sign it. And we want it. Uh, and we won't move unless we get it. There are a couple instances where the CIA shut down the interrogation program because the Department of Justice was reviewing initial papers saying they wanted to reissue them. And the CIA said, hey, if you want to reissue papers because you're not sure the initial guidance was accurate, we ain't doing anything until we get the follow up papers. And just to close on this, that's when the White House steps in because the CIA goes to the White House and says, hey, you're the referee. You think we should be conducting interrogations. We're not conducting them until the Department of Justice gets its paper. Go squeeze those guys at justice to make sure they do their jobs. And, of course, this is where the famous John Yu memo emerges yes, from. Yes, correct. Talk a little bit about yes. that. The John Yu uh, and a couple other players of the Department of Justice were part of the, the uh, sort of mechanics of legal guidance for the CIA that led to the black sites that the book is all about. John Yu was core to offering the legal decisions. He was in frequent conversation with the general, there's a quite a large, believe it or not, general counsel's office at the CIA, with the general counsel himself. He wrote the formative opinions on what is torture and what is not torture and why what CIA was doing was not in violation of federal torture statutes. People use that short term, that, that term now, including when I give speeches. And CIA officers bristle, torture's illegal. We specifically went to the Department of Justice to have them tell us is sleep deprivation torture? And they said no. Now, different people may disagree, but that's the kind of stuff that John, he was critical in the initial decisions that led to the formalization of an interrogation program. Those first decisions, August of 2002. And that's when the CIA interrogation program really started in earnest. And how does the agency look upon that today? What is the lesson from all of that and, and, and all the criticism that has come to those memos and that point of view at the time? Boy, that's a that's a tough question for a lot of CIA officers. And again, that leads. I, there's a reflections chapter at the final the final piece of the book. I must have interviewed 35 or 40 people, and all, I asked them all questions about ethics and reflections. Uh, many would say they don't regret what happened uh, because they they would say America never had another catastrophic attack. Um, we were a piece of that, and so pride isn't the right word, but they look back and say, boy, we're just Another attack was stopped. Part of that was the Army. Part of that was the CIA. But we're a piece of that. They would look back and say that um, some of them would say certain parts of the program, in particular waterboarding, were too aggressive. Some of them would say uh, or most of them would say we won't go back to that because you can't put CIA officers in the position of being second guessed 10 years later as they were. By the, by the Senate in 2014, looking back, the Senate put out a report that said, we hate what the CIA did. And a lot of us said, excuse me, we told you what we were doing 10 years ago, and you seem to be okay with it then. 
so a very complex to, to me, it's simple because I lived there for 20 years, but it's a very complex mix of where, where the people who stood between Al Qaeda and another attack, but we're also the people who were vilified in some sections of America by the Congress. It's a really mixed emotions, I'd say. Did it do long-term damage in terms of over-politicizing the CIA in ways that sort of are still with us today? Well, that's, I, I'm not sure. I don't think so, uh, partly because the leadership of the CIA, including the current director, whom I know, has been quite good. If you look at the leadership under um, President Obama, for example, Leon Panetta is revered at the, at, at the CIA as being a good leader. So there's been leadership after the turbulence of that era that I think has been strong. Michael Hayden, who was part of the transition out of the black sites, was revered as a CIA director. So good leadership, uh, that, that leadership continues today. Uh, I think if you look at the threats that we face today and the reliance America puts on the security apparatus, for example, Russian intervention, in elections, North Korean missile tests, intelligence on whether the Saudi Arabian leadership was responsible for the murder of a journalist in Turkey. If you look at all those, people still say, I wonder what the intel guys say. I'd like to, the president is a little bit out there on some of this stuff. I'd like to hear what the experts say. So if you, if the, the proof is in the pudding. If, if there, people are still asking about what the CIA thinks, I think that's a, that's a good litmus test for whether people still have some level of trust or whether they think it's been over-politicized. As the, as the national intelligence apparatus has grown larger, though, much larger, much more bureaucratic post 9-11, what impact has that had on the CIA and its ability to be, I, I think to use your description of it before, to be as nimble as it was immediately post 9-11? That's, I, don't, I don't know the answer to that. I, I would offer one cautionary note that, that sort of backs up what you're saying. The bureaucracy across the government, not just the CIA, grew quickly. Washington doesn't break down bureaucracies. They build them and then leave them. So you build, if, if you were to say the threat today from terrorism is uh, radically lower than it was 10 years ago, presumably in any business you'd say, well, then we're expending less resources on that threat because there's less to work at. If you look at the intelligence community, I wouldn't say that's necessarily true. So the bureaucracy gets built up. In terms of nimbleness, that's something that's been a CIA signature for decades. The ability to, you know, weeks after 9-11 to say we're already in Afghanistan in alliance with, with, uh, with Afghan groups. Weeks after 9-11. I mean, that's incredible for a, a country that was a backwater before 9-11 to have a major intelligence presence within weeks that involves arming rebels and taking out the Taliban. Just an incredible. I think they could do that again today, but... Overall, I think the, the, the war on terror has got, it got too big. It got, if anything, overmanned and overbudgeted, and it's hard for Congress to do anything about that because they're afraid that something will happen and somebody will then say, well, you're the one who ripped out the bureaucracy. Why'd you do that? And, and that nimbleness today or, or lack of nimbleness, do you think that it poses real dangers in terms of, of, of what the risk factors are today? I would say no. Um, the, the reason is pretty basic. If, if you look at the immediacy of threats that Intel guys, think of it as a business. Think of it as a business that has serious competitors and, it's, and wants to ensure that, that, that it can maintain profitability. That business is going to be laser focused. If you look at the, at the compelling nature of the threats today, North Korea, Iran, 
uh, if you that's uh, human trafficking, uh, white nationalism in this country. If you're looking at domestic threats, uh, Russian interference in election, each of those is pretty significant. You're not talking about a backwater threat um, for America, and so uh, that the, if you have good leadership and a compelling mission, people tend to be pretty on point. Uh, that's one reason uh, the the workforce in the counterterrorist center that I led was so. Good. One of the reasons was young people not making a terrific amount of money are saying, this is one compelling mission I want in. Talk a little bit about how the black sites evolved, how the whole program, literally the program as you refer to it, evolved so quickly. What happened was uh, the first major al-Qaeda prisoner, Abu Zubaydah, was captured in the spring of 2002. And there was a sense, people disagree about this, but a sense within the CIA that Abu Zubaydah was shutting down. He, in fact, said he was shutting down. Uh, once he started to shut down, the CIA had some options. And again, you're talking about an agile organization that's willing to take risk. Those options were send Abu Zubaydah back to the United States where he goes through a judicial process and gets a lawyer, so he's never going to speak again. Turn him over to another, gov- to another um, country around the world where we won't see him again, and that country might shield us from the intelligence he's providing, or do something the CIA, CIA had never done before. It was sort of Almost, unthinkable before 9-11. Nobody ever considered this before 9-11. That was, why don't we go to friendly countries and ask and tell them we want to build our own prisons and conduct our own interrogations? That conversation happened in the spring and summer of 2002. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, CIA went to the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice said, okay, here's your legal guidance in August of 2002. And years of black sites ensued. Talk a little bit about the experience of 9-11, all of the things that, that you write about in black sites, and and whether or not it really prepares us for the kind of challenges and the kind of risks we face today. There's the old story that we're always fighting the next war based on the lessons from the last one. Arguably, some of the threats today are less asymmetrical than, than the kind of battle we fought against al-Qaeda. Talk a little bit about how it informs today's threats and what the agency should be doing today? Well, there's, as you say, there's an asymmetric threat, which sounds kind of uh, clinical. It sounds like an academic study, simply meaning, are you chasing white supremacists or al-Qaeda? Are you chasing big big state actors like the CIA's chased for decades, the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians? That's a fundamentally different mission. Recruiting someone to be a traitor to their country in a closed society that's a long-term proposition that the CIA has been doing since its establishment in 1947. That's that the Al Qaeda ISIS mission doesn't really prepare you for that. It's such a fundamentally different mission to try to find a terrorist halfway around the world and conduct a raid operation against them. That said, what I saw at the CIA, including uh, in some of the, at some of the height of the black side era in 0304, I, I talked to a lot of senior operations officers. Those are the kinds of officers who, who, who operate overseas and they still were worried about and committed to developing new officers who were focused on traditional espionage, spot, assess, and recruit spies. So the CIA was still doing that in those years with the Soviets, with the Chinese, etc. Obviously, a lot of people were focused on the ISIS mission, but the, the old timers and some of the new folks at the CIA were still saying, we got to stay with the old mission of recruiting spies, because someday we're going to have to return to that. That someday, I think, happens faster than you would think, but that's the kind of stuff you do today when you're working on North Korea or Russia or China or Iran. Which really raises a a sort of 
fundamental question about organizations today. You know, one of the things we hear endlessly, I mean, pick up any business magazine any week, and there's some story about multi-generational organizations, millennials and boomers, etc. How does that function within an intelligence agency, the fact that you're dealing with multi-generations and really differences in attitudes, thinking about that those that are coming along today, those that are coming up into the organization, being recruited by, by the agency, are those some of those that weren't even born or, or just born around the time of 9-11? I think, I think there's a variety of um, opportunities and costs. The opportunity is pretty simple. A lot of the stuff that the agency and other intelligence organizations deal with requires somebody who has, who grew up in a digital age, you know, whether it's intercepting emails or trying to uh, figure out what somebody's doing in a chat room, following social media. I thought that the talent that I saw, and I, I've been out for a while now, but the talent I saw and their ability to manipulate the digital world so that we could understand a terrorist halfway around the world was stunning. So if you're talking about skill set, you have to have those people. And the CIA, the FBI can compete because the brand is still so strong. You can go to a great school where somebody can make more money on Wall Street and they're going to say, I want some of that CIA action. That's the upside. Um, great talent and skill sets in, in ways that my generation can't, I, we, we couldn't do. Downside is people want immediate gratification and responsibility. That's not a horrible thing. Everybody wants to come in and be a player. But with some of the, with the risk of some of the stuff the CIA does and the FBI does, you have to have a level of maturity and experience to make good judgments when you're dealing with people's lives and with potentially putting someone behind bars. So I think the, the making sure that people stay satisfied, making sure they stay interested, making sure that you don't churn somebody out after three years is a challenge. I don't remember having any responsibility for years after I got in, which now, now seems depressing in retrospect. But uh, I can't imagine somebody coming in with that attitude today. Did did the material about black sites and Abu Ghraib and all of the, the bad publicity that came out of that, what impact did that have on recruitment with respect to the CIA? I don't think much. Um, Abu Ghraib, I thought, was devastating. That was not a black site. Obviously, that was a U.S. military, um, a few members of the U.S. military doing stuff that was illegal at uh, at a facility in Iraq. That was not a U.S. CIA detention facility. But I, I thought the images from Ghraib were devastating for America. Just for years, Abu Ghraib echoed because the images were so graphic and so inappropriate. In terms of recruitment, and I did a little bit of that going out to college campuses. I mentioned brand earlier. There's a some percentage, I don't know what it would be of college students who would say, especially, you know, you're talking about a 24 year old or a 26 year old, maybe a, a college student who has a couple of years of work experience. The idea of telling your, your friends, you know, I've decided to join the CIA is still compelling. You can still get terrific recruits. Uh, you know, even during those years, I don't remember a particular problem. We brought in tremendous talent. Now keeping them in the expensive city of Washington, D.C., when they get married and have a couple kids, that's a problem. That because they, it, you know, people just can't afford to, uh, to maintain families with the federal government salary. But recruiting them, we got great talent. And finally, Philip, is, is the culture of the organization different fundamentally in this post-9-11 world? 
I'm not sure. Um, I, the, the, the changes that happened were so profound going after the slow moving Soviet machine into trying to, into sort of 24 seven tactical operations to find somebody in Afghanistan or Pakistan or Indonesia or the Philippines. Um, boy, that that's the mission changed fundamentally. I'm not sure the CIA has a lot of officers are concerned that the mission has become too paramilitary has become too little about developing somebody who can recruit a spy. Given the threats we face from North Korea and, and Iran, I've got in Russia, it said, I've got to believe that the agency, I haven't talked to them in a while, but are sitting back saying we've got to continue to develop traditional spies. But I don't know if nine 11 has changed the CIA forever with one exception. If in the future, when there are tactical threats from from organizations like human traffickers or drug organizations, I think people would now say the CIA has the ability to find individuals in those organizations and take them out. Maybe we should use them for those missions in, in addition to the traditional go chase the Russians and the Chinese around. Philip Mudd, his book is Black Sight, the CIA in the post 9-11 world. Philip, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you.